Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield, welcoming you to episode 133 of the podcast that explores our place and time. Who better to join us on this exploration than Dr. Brian Swim, professor of philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness at the California Institute of Integral Studies, someone who was very, very nearly my own graduate advisor, someone whose work has definitely informed and inspired me, as well as many other people, including many uh, the former guests of this show who have been involved in that program. Brian is a real interesting case. He uh, has a PhD in mathematics for work on gravitational dynamics, but has uh, spent most of his career trying to help us rewrite the story of our cosmos, uh, to tell a story about a living universe in which we play active participatory roles, a universe that is coming awake through us. I mean, I have to admit, I, I, I wish more mathematical physicists uh, took this stance, but you know, they probably will in the years to come. In this episode, we take a, a granular look at his book, The Universe is a Green Dragon, which uh, is not new. It's, it's been around for a, a while, but I find it such a fun and accessible entry point to the distinctions between our sort of current reigning paradigm and what seems obviously due to replace it, uh, that it seemed worth pouring over in more detail. Before we get started, I want to point you to some of the cool stuff that Brian is doing right now. He has a class on Coursera Journey of the Universe, a story for our times, offered by Yale. And he also has this lovely and award-winning documentary, Journey of the Universe. I will link to both of those things in the show notes, so uh, be sure to trip on over there for more if you enjoy his warmth, and his insight in this conversation. Also, I want to take a moment to thank all 155 Future Fossils Patreon supporters, including the total windfall of new supporters that have picked up in the last couple weeks, including William Bass, Oliver Ness, Jacob Bruns, James Fairbairn, Topher Sipes, my old homie who I, I hope to get on the show here soon, Simon Hyduke, another fantastic visionary artist that deserves some time on the mic, and Sophia Minson. Thanks to each and every one of you from the bottom of my heart for helping keep this show independent and ad-free and allowing me to continue to pursue the most interesting conversations that I can imagine without any obligation to the commercial concerns of advertising partners. Anyone who's been listening to Future Fossils recently knows that I also just picked up the duties of hosting and producing a different podcast for the Santa Fe Institute, where I work during the day's complexity podcast. And uh, I see these two as very complementary overall. You know, complexity is much more focused on rigorous scientific research, sort of the sober daytime version of future fossils, if you will. But the amount of work required to, to do them both is just stunning, and it keeps me constantly absorbed. And, uh, you know, your support of future fossils really encourages me to continue putting in the extensive work uh, that it takes to keep the light on here. 
Also, it allows me to create all sorts of other cool stuff for people that I've been releasing behind the Patreon backstage curtain, including uh, recent book club conversations about the Three Body Problem series by Lucy Jin, uh, which have just been absolutely wonderful, and those recordings are up, as well as new studio recordings. Those of you who do not know, I've been a singer-songwriter for 20 years, and this is like the only opportunity that I have anymore to uh, continue to create new and interesting compositions and, and, uh, and actually produce and publish them. Uh, I also just put out a secret Future Fossils episode with Zach Nasser and Matt Dorsey a little while back on nutrition and nootropics, which I think is probably the most informative and immediately practically helpful episode uh, that we've ever had on this show. And uh, over the holiday break, I will be releasing tons of other cool stuff, uh, secret recordings that I have made with Ramin Nazer, as well as uh, music producer East Forest and uh, quantum theorist Sky Nelson Isaacs. So if you feel that Future Fossils adds something to your life, then uh, please consider chipping in a couple bucks a month and joining the Patreon community. I will deeply, deeply appreciate it, as will my baby daughter, shameless plug for awesome baby. Uh, (laughs) Oh no, I feel dirty. Even if you're absolutely broke, I'm glad that you're listening to this show and that folks have been sharing these conversations with your friends. That's immensely helpful leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts. I'm I'm sure you know just how wonderful it is every time I I find out that someone found this show through a review or a recommendation. So, yes, thank you deeply, all of you. And I've got some other great interviews lined up uh, for the beginning of next year that I'm really excited about. And uh, I'll tell you more about that in the Future Fossils Facebook group uh, as we move on. In fact, if you are interested in making guest suggestions or topical suggestions for 2020, I am all ears. You can leave me a note in the Facebook group or you can email futurefossilspodcast at gmail.com. And I'd love to hear from you. So, thanks everybody. Enjoy this conversation. I would love to just talk about um, whatever comes up and whatever you'd like to look at. Um, I mean, what I know about is kind of the universe, so that obviously will show up eventually. (laughs) Well, okay. Um, Seeing as it is that we're talking about the universe today, Brian Swim, it's a pleasure to have you on Future Fossils. Great to be here, Mike. I've been reading your uh, the book that uh, your friend Devin sent me. The universe is a green dragon, and uh, I admittedly that's almost twenty years old. So I, I suspect that your thinking on some of these matters may have evolved in that time. Uh, well, for instance, I can yeah. give you one example. Yeah. I taught the universe being 14 billion years old, and now I would have to say it's 14 billion and 20 years old. 
So there are some <laughs> updating. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Well, you know, like, um, I don't know really how much the scientific advancements that have occurred in the last 18 or 20 years or whatever, uh, affect the actual substance of your work, uh, which I, you know, I, I understand to be an attempt at helping sort of reboot a useful metaphysics. I mean, you know, this, this notion of, of cosmic forces that we embody as, you know, a product of, of this universal creativity, that doesn't seem like the kind of thing that gets revised when we discover the Higgs boson, for example. <laughs> if you don't mind, um, why don't you ask the question again? Yeah, sure. Respond? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it's, it's a sort of a, an A and a B, right? The first is, it seems that your work as a cosmologist, in the words of you know, my friend Zach Stein, uh, you know, an attempt at a modern or perhaps postmodern metaphysics, a, a, you know, a way of integrating our scientific understanding with our sense of meaning and, and purpose and, you know, the interior life of, of the mind and our sense of, of place in the cosmos. And in that sense, I guess the B of that question was that it, it seems as though that kind of work is, is relatively robust and that it's not, gonna, it's not going to be disrupted by, like, the recent discoveries in particle physics and so on. Yeah, great question. I, I, let me start off and say that I, I really love the work you're doing like with people like Zach Stein. I admire his work. Uh, I agree with it completely. I feel like, in a certain sense, there's a, a, a resonance between what I'm doing and what Zach and, and you and others are doing. But um, there is a difference. And the difference is that <clears throat> I, I think of myself as a storyteller. I, I really just tell stories about the universe. Now, it's true that when you tell a story of the universe, you're going to have a metaphysics. A lot of scientists will say, no, 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 I don't have a metaphysics. I'm just, doing, I'm just replaying the facts. <laughs> but it's not the case. The way, the way in which we organize the facts, uh, there's an underlying philosophical orientation in metaphysics. But I'm not, um, that isn't what I do. I, don't, I, I couldn't even tell you what my metaphysics are in any uh, detailed way, but I, I, I think of myself as as a person who has who has learned a lot about the universe and just is amazed by it and wants to tell stories about it, really. And so, actually, the um, as as the new discoveries in science come along, it alters uh, and changes and develops the stories that I tell because I always want them rooted in. Our, our contemporary understanding. I hope, hope you don't see this as trying to distance myself from metaphysics. It's more trying to be honest about uh, what I do, really, Michael. Oh, no, no problem. Yeah, I think, you know, something that we discuss on this show a lot is, you know, in locating ourselves in time, you know, I think uh, yeah. that notion is you know, requires a, a narrative frame to some yeah. extent, you know, or, you know, I sometimes exactly. I play with the idea that we're, it's a, you know, that there, there may be ways for us to move into sort of nonlinear and networked understandings that are not, I don't know, so singular as, as the story. But, you know, the fact is that we, we still like, you know, you talk about in this fabulous book that, it would be a mistake to divorce ourselves from the story in an attempt to move into 
uh, whatever new thing is taking shape. And, and in particular, I'm really curious to hear you expound on this thing that you talk about very early in the book, actually, the realization that I'm quoting from page 40, uh, the realization that rather than having a universe filled with things, we are enveloped by a universe that is a single energetic event, a whole a unified, multiform, and glorious outpouring of being. That seems to me to be the, the distillation, or sort of the, um, the objective you, 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 of your you've story. Identified, you've identified the absolute heart of the book. Michael, don't read another page. It's all downhill from there. That's <laughs> it. God, you just you went right to it. Fantastic. And I think that is, that's one of the great things we're learning, is that we're part of a whole. We, we've, been, we've been socialized in the thinking of ourselves as individuals and separate and so forth. There's some truth there, but what is amazing is that there, there's this, this energy, energy event taking place. We're part of it. Everything's part of it. And that, I don't know. I just find that, I found that just so exciting. And I love your phrase, by the way, locating ourselves in time. That, that could be even the that could be the title of our entire conversation. I think locating ourselves in time is is the fundamental spiritual and scientific challenge. Mm. So, so how do you see us uh, struggling or succeeding to to rise to that challenge right now in 2019 as a species? Okay, the the way in which I think we are moving into a new way of locating ourselves in time is to realize that, like we're, I just said, we're enveloped in a, a whole drama. I mean, this, this has been going on. Humans have been here for, what, 200,000 years, but, but this drama of, of the universe has been going on for 14 billion years. So we wake up inside of a story. And, we, and the, the unfortunate part about the the modern period, which which you and and your colleagues are pointing out, is that we we tend to think of everything in, in human terms, and so we talk about Western civilization or industrial society or, or you know the human species, but that's just a little tiny tiny part of what's taking place, as we begin to understand ourselves, as a mode of this whole vast unfolding energy, it, it changes how we think of ourselves and how we orient ourselves in the midst of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. In fact, you know, something about the way that you, uh, the rhetorical device that you employ in this book that I love, that I, I've found myself drawn to over the, the years, is, you know, in, uh, in for instance, uh, my case, you know, I think of photosynthesis creating this oxygen catastrophe in our atmosphere as a sort of foreshadowing of the industrial revolution and our pollution of the atmosphere. And there's something about the casting of what we think of as the prehistoric world in the terms of the human and the contemporary that seems extremely important. So I love in your book how you describe, for example, the earth as a corporation. <laughs> and I would love to hear you like lay that out a little bit because there's something, you know, we've touched on this so many times on this show about, about what it means to what, you know, full cost accounting 
you know what yeah. it means like the, the, yeah. the problem of inadequate measurement of value and and all of that and i'd love to hear you go into that yeah it's the idea that that the kind of the underlying it's actual the underlying metaphysics here i'm using a word i said i wasn't going to but the underlying <laughs> metaphysics of the modern period can be summarized in various ways but this is how how thomas berry who is my teacher this is how he summarized it he said we think we live in a universe that is a collection of objects a collection of objects and he's trying to replace that with another view uh, which I won't tell you right now because I, I'm trying to focus on your question. <laughs> and we, so we think of the universe as a collection of objects. And I thought, God, that is so true. I mean, we think of the earth as a collection of objects. So, for instance, in, a, in, in, in simplistic terms, we think of earth as, as like a hardware store. It has all this stuff. And then we can go in there and take it and we can rearrange it any way we want and make stuff. You know what? It's like a, we think of Earth as like a gravel pit. And, and instead of that, we, we have to recognize that, that the, the Earth has been organizing itself for four billion years. It has brought forth life. You know, I'm very much uh, convinced that the Earth is closer to a living organism than it is to a collection of objects. Now, people can argue about, well, Earth isn't really an organism. Yeah, it, it's not. But it's closer to being something like a tree or a forest than it is a gravel pit. So the, the, the notion is the Earth is, has been spectacularly successful in bringing forth life and vitality, mind, beauty, and so our, our challenge is how to actually fit in to this enveloping community. And one way, one way is to recognize that all of the, the great words we use to describe humans are true of the earth as well, and in, in a certain sense, even more so. So, for instance, we are so um, impressed with the, the intelligence of humans. Our brains are big and we, we can think and all the rest of it. But then we have to take in the fact that Earth brought us forth. So it's true the Earth as a whole doesn't have a brain. Nevertheless, it has the creative intelligence required to bring forth brains. So, you know, the, I'm, I'm trying to make that reversal. Now, another example is we talk about human economics, and then everything on the planet has to fit into human economics. Well, as a matter of fact, Earth has had an economic system you know, for a very, very long time, keeping track of energy exchanges. The, the fish have an economics, the forest has an economics, and we come along billions of years later, and we have an economics. So we have to understand that we have to fit into the enveloping economic system rather than trying to stuff it into ours. That figure ground reversal is, is, is what I think is the most difficult one for, for the modern industrial human to make. Yeah, there, does, does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, there's an interesting, again, you know, there's, there's something interesting going on in this work in terms of your casting of all 
of human activity as a particular or specific instance of the yeah. interplay of these cosmic forces, even yeah. as you use language that would suggest the opposite, you know, that like, you know, earth is a corporation as you know, this, this whole book for the, for listeners, by the way, this whole book is in the form of a conversation between a sort of a wise elder and a, a curious youth. And, um, so it makes sense in that regard to start with the familiar, but you know, I think, you know, I think that I, it seems to me as though your goal ultimately is to perhaps get people to move past that and into, to encourage the supposition that actually a corporation is in some sense, like a, a specific kind of ecosystem or that, you know, that these, that these ideas, however we choose to, manipulate them are insufficient and actually your your book starts out that way just being like good luck <laughs> so <laughs> good luck i like that <laughs> let me try to make it specific and give you a sense of um of locating ourselves in time because i think like i just i just love that that phrase of yours and i the um one of the great discoveries in science and we're free to interpret it because we, it's a, just an amazing discovery, and it, it's that the universe uh, sets about to create a n different eras of its unfolding, and and it does this in a way that is um, irreversible. So, for instance, an example would be: twelve billion years ago, the universe set about creating galaxies. Now, before that moment. Uh, it was not possible for a galaxy to be created. And after that time, there has not been a single galaxy created. But 12 billion years ago, the universe set about creating these galaxies, and it created something like 2 trillion, 2 trillion galaxies all at once. And then that, that was done with, in a certain sense, that structure was put in place. Now, even earlier, the same thing happened with the the element of hydrogen. All of the hydrogen was brought forth at 380,000 years after the birth of the universe. It couldn't, it couldn't come forth before, and now we're, 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 we're given all this hydrogen from that great cosmic event. So, also here, just let me give you one last one, a third one. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the third one is life, life on planet Earth. Well, Earth complexified to a point when suddenly life came roaring forth. And, you know, the scientists refer, this, refer to this as the self-organizing dynamics of the universe, and in this case, of the Earth. So, Earth complexified, and then suddenly life came forth. Life has not been invented again since then. It was there, that was the time of giving birth to life. And, and, the, and many biologists speculate that if, if, if life ever ended on planet Earth, it would not come forth because that capacity has been used. So in this way of thinking now, I'm taking the word intelligence, and I'm saying that word refers not just to humans, but also to the entire cosmic process. I don't mean that the universe is thinking like a human. I'm, I'm simply saying that the universe is manifesting a, an intelligence that is, that is beyond 
our understanding at this time. But we can begin to feel its presence when we look at the vast sweep of time. So it is, then the question is, for humans, what time is it? How, <laughs> what time is it? And, and, the, and the answer is this. It, it's, it's time for us to participate in giving birth to another era of Earth that couldn't come forth earlier and won't come forth if we don't bring it forth now. That it is, and it's not that this is something that we are doing on our own. You know, a galaxy doesn't create itself on its own. It is part of a whole vast universe. So we too, we humans that are alert, we're participating in this deep form of, you know, it can be called cosmic intelligence, so long as a person realizes I'm not talking about something that's strange. I'm talking about the processes the universe uses that we study in science and that we write about in poetry. So that, I, and then the, the, that's the question I would love to awaken in humans today. What are the ways in which we are drawn to participate in a very, very deep form of creativity? Mm. Yeah, you know, you know, it's something that I, I find myself uh, routinely butting up against in conversation with uh, other folks who would self-describe as futurists is that, and, and you bring, you talk about this in a, a couple parts of the book, including the chapter on, on land and memory, this issue of going back an insufficient, I don't know how to say this distance in time. I, yeah. just forgive the spatialization metaphor. Yeah. Um, but that, you know, that if our memory is shallow, that we're bound to sort of just uh, recreate these cyclic things and r rather than um, anchoring ourselves as deeply as possible and using yeah. that as the roots or the springboard from which to create something truly new. And so I'm curious, you know, as someone who's given so much thought to these matters, where you see people mistaking the past for the future or thinking that we're creating something radically new when in fact we're just sort of repeating ourselves. Could you ask it again? It's a yeah, great question. I just, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking as you, as you talk. Yeah. So, so you know, I think, I think a lot about, about, for example, in the conversation around the technological singularity, you know, that there's, yeah. there's this notion that we are creating the noosphere through our, yeah. you know, our machines or that we're going to, you know, somehow birth a God mind. And it seems to me to be such a flagrant and offensive, willful ignorance of, first of all, the sort of ever-present origin that you talk about, that, you know, Gene Gebser talks about, this notion that creativity, that, we, that we, we live already within the singularity, and that creation is constant, and that it is already beyond our understanding, and that we, for all, you know, that there's, a, a, I think, a strong theological argument that if we were contained in the body of some vaster intelligence than our own individual minds that we wouldn't even necessarily recognize it that it would be you know sort of a over the rainbow sort you know like over the the horizon of our own ability to compute um yeah and and yeah. and and so you know there's i think it's it's almost in that sense it's sort of forgivable that we think that we're making this thing but that you know like uh, yeah. a lot of people have talked about this about you know the notion that that to project 
what already is. The language, you know, the origins of language itself was a singularity and that to project yeah. this thing that we're living within already that each of us must develop through in our lives. Michael. Uh, you know, it's a mistake. It's a, it's a profound mistake to yes. see it as ahead of us somehow and like un, yes, undeveloped. Yes, yes. yes. I see. I see. I'm getting, I'm getting a, a better understanding of what you're saying. And um, yeah, let's, let's think about that together. There's a way in which one of the fundamental um, errors of the modern period is, is ruining this idea of the singularity and uh, because it is, it it's it's thinking of ourselves as the intelligent species in a in a world that is basically a collection of objects, and then so and then as you're saying, we imagine that we with our with our clever minds we're creating technology and that will give birth to the singularity, and and I think. That is a, a perfect example of what I'm trying to suggest is the mistake. Rather than joining a process, I love that you brought up this notion of the noosphere, which comes really from the French paleontologist Pierre Thierry de Chardin and his, his sense that, that life you know, created the, the um, the geosphere, the, the hydrosphere, the atmosphere, the biosphere, and that now what is coming forth is this noosphere, by which he meant an envelope of thought was going to surround the earth and be something like a global brain or a planetary mind. He, he left that a little bit open. And I think it's a, it's a stunning insight because it, it shows... It emphasizes the amazing ability of humans to synergize their minds with one another. It, in a real sense, this is the distinguishing characteristic of humans. And let me say it another way, is that, that we have found a way to store our learning and our information, our knowledge, outside of our brains, so that we build up uh, culturally an ongoing accumulation of, of knowledge and insight. That is something that no species has done. Now, I, I have no doubt that language exists in almost all animal species. They have a language, they can communicate. But what they don't have is, is a way of storing their learning, individual learning, and to be able to pass that on. With other animals, unless the DNA is changed and captures what adaptations come along, then the future generations can't benefit from what an individual learned. We're different. We can benefit from, an in, one person comes up with a great idea that can be stored and shared throughout the whole. So, so humans don't really enter into the story with just their own individual mind. They have a mind that's 200,000 years in the making. And that, so that's what Teilhard was, was excited about, this idea that because we were, we were bringing our thought together, we're creating an entire envelope of intelligence for the planet Earth. Now, 
That's, I think, a brilliant idea. It's somewhat distorted in the ways that you have listed. It's distorted when we start to think that we are in charge of this as activity with our with our machines, with our computers, with our, our hookups. So I think that is also part of the change. When we see that we are participating in the emergence of another level of mind, I think we will see the noosphere as as a force for evoking life rather than right now. The um, the world of artificial intelligence is only exacerbating the the assault on the planet. Mm. I'd love to sort of wangle this conversation towards your cosmic forces. The, you know the the way that you have yeah uh, sort of updated uh, a five elements view of things um, because you know there's something in here. At the very end of your chapter on the sea that I think is relevant to this issue of, you know, are we discovering or creating, um, you know, the, the sort of James P. Carr's finite and infinite games thing about culture as, as a process of constant renewal, which to me suggests a way of reconciling the seemingly opposed facts that there is nothing new under the sun and that we are vital and irreplaceably contributing something novel and surprising and, and fresh. Yeah. And yeah. you say, you say here, um, you know, your Thomas Berry wise elder figure is constantly yeah. reminding the curious youth in this book is that, you know, he only found out about cosmic background radiation and the ever present origin of our cosmos, like a few hours ago. Yeah, you know. So how can you be so presumptuous? And so, to as to assume that something or something, you know, that something is or is not a certain way. And um, you say we are awash with the presence of the universe, already swamped in its beauty. All things have discharged themselves into the world, merely awaiting our development of the sensitivity to respond to them. And so, yeah. you know, that's the chapter on water and the cosmic force of sensitivity. And, uh, you know, what I, what I think of as a, as a, like an evolutionary guy as like recombinance, you know, recombinant novelty and, and the constantly permutating identity of things. It reminds me of like years and years ago, I was listening to a, a, uh, the Bjork song, modern things where she talks about how all of the modern things have always been there in a mountain, just basically waiting for us to become aware of them. And that uh -huh. this notion that, in a sense, that the, the noosphere has always been there, but in yes. some sort of like dormant form, like a seed, yeah. a seed yeah. form. Yes. So this is, I feel like this is where we can get into, um, you know, back to that issue of a linear narrative being insufficient, but a narrative in which we have, uh, you know, constant reinterpretation and, and discovery and what they call in like uh, fan fiction, like retconning, you know, where like we're like the sequel to a story will completely reimagine the original what, story. What is retconning? Mean? So like retconning, the worst example of retconning is in the Star Wars prequels when they say that the Force is the product of midichlorians. These, you know, like the microorganisms living in Force talented individuals. You know that it's it's a way of altering all of the previous films of shifting our perspective on them to call the earth a corporation is I think a, 
a much more pleasant and uh, useful form of retconning. <laughs> I think it means retroactively converting, but I'm not oh. I'm not quite clear on that. Anyway, yeah. this you know, there's something yeah. there's something about the backward glance at all of this that I find interesting in terms of locating ourselves in time. You yeah. know, and and like the the importance of reinterpreting yeah. our world. And I'd love to hear yeah. you um, okay, yeah. Go on that. Yeah, yeah. And I like I like the way you, put, you said. Um, maybe maybe my way into these questions that you're asking, which are which are all essential, would be to pick up on this. You use the phrase you said the um, the noosphere has always been here, but it's been in a latent form. I I, I really like that. Okay, let me just connect to that one phrase. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that what one of the things that really blew my mind was when I, I realized that in the early universe, I mean, I'm talking about the universe when it was one minute old, all right? One minute. Even then, even then, the, um, the presence of long-burning stars could be talked about. Now, and when the universe was one minute old, it consisted of elementary particles. It was in a state of plasma. There was nothing even as complex as, um, as a single atom in existence. Nothing had been constructed beyond the elementary particles. And yet, there's a way in which long-burning stars were there. In other words, the, they were there in latent form, and they were waiting to come forth. Now, I'm using language there poetically, but it, but it, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, I like for instance, what we've what we've learned is that in order to have a long burning star, you have to have a you have to have a strong nuclear interaction that holds protons together. So protons are are both positive charged electrically, so they they're forcing themselves apart. But you need a force that will hold them together. But what but what we've discovered is that that force holding them together has to be of a certain intensity. If it's too strong, you're not going to have long burning stars. If it's too weak, you're not going to. So this is this is the discovery of what uh, some people refer to as the fine tuning of the universe, which I, I really don't like. I mean, it's, it's because who's tuning it, you know, I, it, <laughs> but, but if we think of it, we think of this as there, there's a way in which there's a fundamental elegance from the very beginning of the universe that enables a creative unfolding that is continually astonishing. And that, that is my, at least my way of thinking about what you just said, that the noosphere was actually present from the very beginning, but in latent form. So I want to develop that just one more step, and it's related to what I just said, the way long burning stars were present. I believe that we can see how the human consciousness was present at that early, early time. And in, in, in a, this this idea goes back to Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, but what he what he says is that the gravitational interaction from the beginning of time was going to result 
in stars and planets that were spherical. And he, and he makes this he makes this amazing observation. He said, on a spherical planet, uh, the species, a species like the human, is going to fold back on itself. It's going to fan out in all directions around the planet, and then it's going to meet itself again. So it's it's going to have to deal with itself on a deeper level, and it's it's through that through that interaction that we have the development and complexification of human consciousness, and eventually this explicit form of the noosphere. So the noosphere exists in latent form, even in the gravitational interaction at the beginning of time. And that's a long explanation, but I'm excited by the, the way in which you, you asked the question. I apologize. Oh, no need. Yeah, that's... So, you know, one of the things I, and I, th I think I've already said this on this call, but one of the things I like about this book is that it's not so much that you humanize what modernity thinks of as like impersonal cosmic forces, as it is that you cosmicize what we think of as, you know, uniquely human. And, and I love it. You do, this, you do this, in, uh, you know, the first step in this is drawing a, a line from gravity to human fascination, to human yeah. interest in things, which I love because, I, you know, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this ever since I saw it. There's this fantastic documentary called Proteus about the life and work of Ernst Haeckel. You know, the, he coined the term ecology. Um, yes. This documentary makes the case about his work that his work wasn't even possible. His his beautiful illustrations of all of these thousands of newly discovered marine species was only made possible by the repeated failed attempt to stretch a telegraph cable across the Atlantic Ocean uh, to connect the New York and the London Stock Exchange. And that every time that they dropped this cable into the sea... And sometimes it, you know, it snapped and they'd have to pull it back up and they would find all of these, these deep sea creatures that, you know, at the time it was believed that the bottom of the ocean could only be a frozen, barren desert expanse, that there was nothing alive down there. And yeah. so this, this documentary makes a really um, suggestive constellation about, you know, our historical appreciation of the, or connection between the ocean and the unconscious mind and like the emergence of depth psychology and ecology as sort of twins at the end of the 19th century and how all of it is anchored, as you say, in the allurement, you know, that this, this webbing together of things that's become a sort of, uh, the, you know, the network religion of, of Silicon Valley is just like one instance of this, but that, this uh, sort of Teilhard de Chardin drive to connect everything to everything is in a way that you can look at these economic forces drawing us together into these patterns of interdependency as a point on a continuum between cosmic allurement in the form of gravity and, and yeah. human allurement in the form of love. And so in that sense that there is uh, there's something innately gross <laughs> if you if you're, if you're willing to go here with me that there's something that that this process of novelty and uh the constant remixing and emergent forms is challenging 
to our sense of who we are and where our boundaries are, and that we're even as we're constantly pulled beyond ourselves by our fascination, our attention to things, our, our longing for intimacy with with one another or with you know some cherished activity, that the sort of price of that is transformation, and that means that the future is inherently offensive to whatever sort of static identity we have created for ourselves, you know, that it's, it's kind of like disgusting, you know, to think about how much more fluid and more connected and, and more metamorphic we seem to inevitably become. <laughs> I don't know if this is like, uh, I have compassion for people who fear the kind of cosmic participation that you're talking about because yeah. it requires a transfigurement of yeah. the person that they believe themselves to be. And that's yeah. true. That's true. Whether we're talking about a story in which human activity is something that the planet is doing, you know, that yeah. was true in the 19th century when people were offended by the retconning of the human story such that we were the descendants of, you know, primates and that's true in every conversation I have with everyone about this, um, you know, refigurement of the boundary between the human and the machine. You know, this notion that, that we, again, it gets back to this issue of dispensing with this idea that we are separate objects bumping into each other. And, and yet, it's also valid, you know, it's also valid that, like, there's, a, there's a good reasons not to want a, a brain implant, for example. So, yeah. I don't know, like, how do you, how do you make sense of this notion that this sort of cosmopolitan identity is so so likely to induce something like future shock in people. In a way, what you're prescribing for folks is a kind of, um, I don't know, psychedelic ego death. And like, uh -huh. how do you hold, how do you interpret, how do you respond to what I think is a very natural human impulse to be repelled by the idea of stuff like the microbiome or cyborgs or, you know, the idea that we're merely, you know, to some merely the activity of, of the planet or the cosmos. Like, yeah. you know, what do you, yeah. what do you do with that? And yeah. like, do you feel that? Do you have those feelings? Um, I, well, I have, um, I have a sense that, uh, the universe is striving to give expression to itself. And one of the features of the universe is what Thomas Berry calls differentiation. Mm. So that we, as we move through this journey, uh, things are, are becoming uh, more differentiated. Uh, the number of species on the planet increases over time. As you, as you go in and you look at the development of any intellectual discipline, it, it differentiates over time. And so this power of differentiation uh, has reached a, a new level of intensity with humans. It is, it's, it's almost the case that individual humans can end up differing from each other the way entire species differ from each other. So I, I actually think that the there's uh, you spoke about the latency, so the way in which the noosphere was latent even in the early universe. I think exactly the same is true of every 
of every human, just to focus on humans for a second, that not only are there essences latent, but the universe actually depends upon these potentialities coming forth and being developed. In other words, what I'm trying to suggest is that one of the primary tasks for each of us, each human being, is to give birth to an expression of life that has never existed before. There is a way in which I, I think that things are, are coming into manifest form that have been latent from the beginning, but that have not been fully expressed until now. So I, I see this as um, a thrilling role for a, a, an individual. And I, I just don't, I don't feel the kind of, I don't feel the sense that we are losing our individuality. We can, but I don't think the universe actually wants us to. I think it wants a full expression of, of our unique form of beauty that each of us potentially is. That's how I would view it. Yeah, so, you know, in The Universe is a Green Dragon, you bring this up with, you know, respect to the problem of evil. And your yeah. your theodicy uh, involves, again, referring to allurement as sort of this cosmic force of which gravity is one example, love is another, yeah. fascination. That, again, like these things, as they bring us together, they transform us yes. um, in service of... You know, through through this this sensitivity that each of us also possess, and into you know a surprising and emergent new thing, and so I'd like to hear you expound on that a little bit and how you understand. Again, you know, to, you know, Chardin. One of my favorite De Chardin. One of my favorite quotes of his is, "Hyper collectivization leads to hyper personalization." Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. And yeah. yet that what that means in the sort of everyday street level sense is that we are constantly challenged by the alien, you know, by the other as we unfold and embrace more yeah. and more. Yeah. And so you end up, you know, we're at a point now where I think, you know, in, in a sort of brick and mortar terms, it's easy to see in a, in a sort of cosmic way how the diversity of human opinions is a beautiful phenomenon, but it leads to all of these, you know, tragic misunderstandings and ideological conflicts. And, and you know, and one of those conflicts right now that's very palpable is between the people who are willing to embrace an expansion of identity, like the kind that you're describing, and those that are digging into their positions, uh, you know, to fundamentalist tribal identities and so on. So I, you know, like really my, my question is like, how do you hold space for, how do you communicate with the folks that are not willing to get on the magic bus with you here? <laughs> you <know? laughs> the magic bus <laughs> like that. <laughs> I would, uh, I, I tell stories from the universe and, and as a way of encouraging people to think about things in a new way. And it would be this, that, that this universe we live in gives birth to itself through relationship. So that my, the example I love the most is uh, the elementary particles, the neutron and the proton. So uh, 
we, we tend to think of them as there they are. Okay, you got a proton, you got a proton. That's what it is. You got a neutron, you got a neutron, you know? No. If, if you have a neutron by itself and you just watch it, within three or four minutes, it will disintegrate. You know, it's called radioactivity. It will fall apart into elementary particles. Now, on the other hand, if you bring a neutron into relationship with a proton, it will exist for a billion years. So that the, the, the my way of interpreting that is to say that the very nature of the neutron relies upon forming a relationship with a proton in order for it to express itself. Now, the same, the same thing, that's, that's at the elementary particle level, but the same thing is true with life. If you look at, you look at an animal like a hawk, all right, and then you look at its prey, like a field mouse, the field mouse may not like the hawk, but nevertheless, each of them is giving rise to the other, because if you, the, the, the mouse develops speed to get away from the hawk. So through time, it becomes more and more what we regard as the mouse. And the hawk, just to deal with the, with the mouse's speed, has to develop better eyesight, better speed on its own, so that it's in the relationship. It doesn't even have to be a happy relationship. But in the relationship is the activation of the deep, essential nature of each of us. So we live in a time when we, we live on this, this, this round planet. And so we, the different human groups are necessarily having to interact with one another as we enter into deeper relationship, both an, an antagonistic relationships and benevolent relationships. They, our true nature comes forth. That would be the view of the evolutionary cosmos, I believe. So I'm, I I want to I want to uh, take a right angle sort of in this Great. conversation. Great. Yeah, maybe in, maybe eighty degrees is um, okay. again to this notion of sensitivity because you know I I Good. actually almost I think I, I you know in our emails leading up to this I think I told you I was almost one of your students at the uh, California Institute of Integral Studies and. It was at a time when and I was. Then, you, then you're sobered up and made a good decision. <laughs> well, as far as being able to afford to live in San Francisco, that was ultimately right. my decision. But um, you know what I ended up studying with Sean Hargens at JFKU was, you know, and, and what has been my abiding interest. You know, the fascination I pursue is the role yeah. of the interior, the role of perception and yeah. in, and you know the interpretation of meaning in the evolutionary process and you say something really lovely here about sensitivity being a property of matter yeah um, and you know i'm i'm curious to uh to explore that with you that there is yeah. something about the fact that like you know the difference between for example being able to make use of like you know like your youth character in this book yeah is incapable of making any kind of use of the knowledge of the cosmic background radiation until he has it. That, you know, the difference between something breaking sort of through into greater organization and, and sapience and adventurous play, as you put it, and breaking down into, you know, like, why is the fire of metabolism structured 
but then we burn a log and it just falls apart. And it seems to have to do with the capacity for the sensitivity of the entity in question, you know, that whether we can make use of that, which is available to us, like a radiation eating fungus versus, you know, I walk into the same nuclear waste and I, I die, you know? Yeah. And I'm, yeah. yeah. What do you think of all that? Michael, I think your, your question is essential in that it isn't until just recently that scientists have begun to ask questions about consciousness, about perception. Now, other cultures, of course, have, have concerned themselves with these questions. But in the West, it, it is, it's only now, really, that we're taking seriously this question of sensitivity and perception. And it could be that the future of science is going to be is going to depend upon the way in which it draws in the question of of the within of the inner world along with its exploration of the outer world so i guess the, what i would i would begin by saying is that i think just to talk about my own work i think my own work in telling the uh, story of the universe is to awaken another dimension of human consciousness in the sense that we're aware of the, the cosmic microwave background radiation. You've, you've referred to this several times. Mm. And this, this, we're now, we've, we've discovered, in other words, the, the light from the beginning of time. And now that, that can be considered knowledge of the universe out there. And it is. But at the same time, this light is what has given birth to us. These elementary particles from the beginning of time have complexified into us. So then our consciousness is aware that what it is looking at is what is looking. Our mm. consciousness of the microwave radiation is now at a point where it realizes it is beholding that which is beholding. And this, this folding back of the universe on itself, in our perception, in our consciousness, I think is, is deeply rooted in the transformation we find ourselves within. It's just another way of being in the universe. And I, I, I'm just amazed by it. You know, I, another way of saying it, because it's so, it's just, it's so hard to integrate it into our lives because we are, we've all been socialized in the modern world. But, but here's an image that, that I, let's see if you like this image as a way to hold on to this. Just okay. imagine, imagine the scientist who is a, who is a typical, uh, you know, objective scientific type, like almost all of us in the Western culture and he's examining the, a brain of a particular fish. He's really getting into the brain. It's fantastic. And then he, as he's doing this, he, he realizes, God, I love my life as a scientist. You know, who am I thankful for? And he thinks about his parents. They put him through grad school, all that kind of stuff. But then he, he thinks further and he realizes, wow, I have to be grateful to not only my parents, but to the fish that created the brains that developed into my brain. And so then he's realizing in that moment that 
He is the further development of the fish reflecting on the fish. Hmm. And it's a it's a movement out of kind of an us them and inside outside and, and a, a dualistic point of view into simply a feeling of astonishment that our consciousness is in the midst of this change that is going to affect an entire planet. So that that is that is how I think how important the development of the within of spirituality, of consciousness. So there's different ways of saying it. But I think your inquiry is, I think it's central uh, to our time. And it's not surprising that someone who is on the cutting edge like you would, would be experiencing this allurement into this, this investigation. It's, you're, you're being drawn in by cosmic creativity. Well, there is, I mean, <laughs> only to the extent that we can talk about an inside and an outside, right? Yeah. <laughs> Brian, this is, um, this is wonderful. Out, out of respect for your time and our scheduled calendar settings, it seems right to draw a bow on this, although I feel like we've only sort of nicked the surface. But I, it was I like fun to, talking with you, Michael. Yeah. I just thanks so much for inviting me in. Absolutely. I, so I, I like to end these with a question, which is, yeah. you know, we've talked about the the notion that that the future is sort of curled up within the present in some way, yeah. you know, present already, and yeah. in a, in a way, this show is based on a, a conversation that I had with my friend years ago about what it has done for her to live as though her life is observed by the unborn generations. Or, or as my friend uh, Dr. Blue would say, um, that we are a past life experience of our future li- selves, you know, yeah. the, that yeah. you know, so I'm. I'm. I guess what the question is around: What does it change, or like, how do you feel it substantially uh, alters one's relationship to life or your relationship to life to regard the future as present in this now, or to stretch the now wide enough to include that future? in our daily considerations. Like what does that do for you? And, and then what, if any message might you attempt to pass forward (laughs) as I, you know, clumsily put it into that future, into the minds of those unborn historians that, you know, I foolishly hope are listening to this program. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Yeah. How does it, so you're saying taking that perspective, how does it, how does it affect me? Yeah, like that, I mean, like, you know, does it change anything? I mean, because you're you're pretty uh, dialed into a, a cosmic perspective, but it, yeah, it is a perspective yeah. that feels very much about there being a cutting edge, about that cutting edge being now. You know, a, a frothy bow wave of cosmic unfolding. And what if it's not? What if we're, you know, actually in dialogue? of some kind with the unborn and it's like the cosmic radiation we have yet to discover and like what changes when we do? Yeah, I am. I mean, it's it's such a great question because it, it, it breaks out of the, the superficiality of a lot of our, of our culture to think about the the distant future. I, I can, 
only tell you how how I think about it. And this isn't something I normally uh, speak about, but it's it's my way of remembering uh, where we are. <clears throat> I think of 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 my life and my my activities as something like uh, foreplay for the the distant <clears throat> future. I, and I don't just mean uh, sexual foreplay. I mean, it's an attempt to bring forth a joy and happiness. And if I had a if I had a message to send to them, it would be something like, well, we did the best we can to activate your joy and, and carry on. I love it. Brian, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks so much, Michael. And and keep at it. This is great work you're doing. Certainly. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Future Fossils. This podcast is a part of the MindPod Network, along with numerous other excellent programs. Go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. If you'd like to help support Future Fossils, consider giving this show a five-star iTunes review or sharing it with someone you think might appreciate these conversations. For more episodes, show notes, copious extras, including music, art, the Future Fossils coloring book and book club, and more, visit patreon.com slash Michael Garfield.